Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the show. show. So, Ted, what are we talking about today? Well, today, Courtney, we're really lucky to have with us Dr. Onawa McIver, who is an associate professor in the Department of Indigenous Education in the Faculty of Education. And Onawa has, uh, for a number of years now, been carving out uh, a considerable swath of uh, territory as an expert in language revitalization, specifically Indigenous language revitalization, and um, has uh, recently received a large federally funded research grant for a national study on language revitalization. So, Onawa, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Welcome, first of all, but Welcome. sort of um, share with us what you've been up to lately. Tanse, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm happy to tell you about the grant and the project. So the grant is that we've uh, been gifted the name Nutalnuch, which is a Sinchathan word from this territory, the uh, one of the languages spoken in this territory, and one of the partners that we have on the grant, the Hosanich people. And the word translates to one mind, one people. And that word was chosen uh, when we described the nature of the kind of work that we were doing. Dr. Peter Jacobs is my research partner from Simon Fraser University. And when we described uh, our work to the elders in the local community, they helped us to find that word in their language to talk about the work of language revitalization, even though it's necessarily specific to every community and every language group, there's also similarities and there's parts of the world of working in language revitalization that's about sharing across different languages and helping us to understand across different languages how to do the work better. So the grant, uh, yeah, started in 2017 and we have nine national partners. It's the first ever national research project in Canada focused on language revitalization. So there have been other large research grants, other partnership grants, but those have been regionally or provincially focused, uh, including British Columbia. So this is the first time that there's been a national in scope project. So, uh, and again, just to clarify, because we use the nation in different ways. When you say national partners, I presume you mean people at other universities across the country, but then there's other First Nations that you would be partnering with as well. So does that nine include those or if you go the full scope? Yeah, so the nine partners are actually all First Nations partners. Okay. And so we have other people affiliated with the grant, like my research partner, Dr. Peter Jacobs, and there's other co-investigators here at this university and other universities. But the nine partners are Indigenous communities or Indigenous organizations. So Mi'kmaq is the farthest east in Nova Scotia. The Decho First Nation in Northwest Territory is the farthest north. And then we have several communities in British Columbia, including, and then one of the organizations is First Peoples Cultural Council, which is the provincial organization in British Columbia that oversees all of the language funding for Indigenous language revitalization, and some communities in between, Mohawk communities in Ontario and Quebec, hmm. etc. And so for people who are listening to this, I guess a question would be, 
what is the benefit of having a nationwide um, project like this? Because you've mentioned that there were regional or provincial, but I guess um, from people who don't know, right? What what would be the benefit? Because for people, you know, a lot of us do realize now as, um, you know, people who have settled on this land that there there are many different nations there are many different tribes there are many different languages spoken so i guess that would be a natural question is is what are we what are we looking for in a national one that we wouldn't necessarily already know from provincial or regional yeah that's a really good question so as i said before language work necessarily happens in language communities and on the land and in the territory where that language lives and where that language originally came from although there's increasing movement across canada so we also have to pay attention to urban language learning and migration across canada and where indigenous people are living and so that's there's a a big shift in our field also to technology and technological ways of accessing language learning and there's there's a whole kind of subfield with in our field that relates to that but to your question about why would it matter to have this national grant or why does it matter to you know kind of connect across different communities the purpose of this is that our field the field of language revitalization has really developed in two ways one as a grassroots movement it really has been mostly first nations people themselves indigenous people and some linguists who have worked have been working really hard through the 60s, 70s, all the way to now to develop this field that we call language revitalization, which is just blood, sweat, and tears, trying to figure it out, writing books, drawing their own drawings, taping over English books, uh, going to courses across Canada or in the States and just trying to learn about additional language learning, learning from French immersion, just piecing it together bit by bit, curriculum by curriculum, teacher by teacher. Um, and then the other part of the field, though, is that it's developed very much in isolation. So there's another field called additional language learning. It used to be called second language learning which there's a lot that we can learn from in our field that it really didn't develop with any attention to Indigenous language learning. So there's one of the parts of our field that Peter and I pay attention to is about bringing those two fields together and what can those two fields learn from each other. So the present day situation is that Indigenous communities are still learning about Indigenous language revitalization in a way that I often describe as the moccasin telegraph. So it's just this little phrase that we use. It's just a little colloquial phrase in First Nations communities. And what it means is that back in the olden days, before we had various kinds of transportation, that we would put our uh, moccasins on our fastest runners and they would run from community to community with news or run from one hilltop to the next hilltop to see which enemies were coming. And so that's what the moccasin telegraph means. It means just sending news with your fastest runners. And that's still very much how we we share information with within our field of language revitalization. It's little language symposiums, it's conferences, it's meeting people like, oh, I know what that person's doing. And it's just a little bit of this and that. And so the nature of the grant is to try to raise that level higher and to help people to connect at a national level. If this community is doing language nests, preschool immersion, 
what other communities are doing preschool immersion that might be facing those same issues? What communities have only seven or eight language speakers left and what strategies are they trying versus other communities that have thousands of members and maybe hundreds of speakers and what strategies are they trying? So it's about creating a network and about helping people to learn from community to community, territory and province to province about strategies that are working for the creation of new speakers in a way that's never existed before because we just haven't had the infrastructure in Canada before now. And this is building the infrastructure, Correct. basically, which is a very timely thing because there are a lot of languages. Um, and I, I didn't know this until I started to learn a lot from the Indigenous Education and Language Departments, right, within our own faculty, that there are many languages that are already sleeping um, and that there are many languages that have less have very little people, if any, who are still fluent in them. So this is a very timely, I mean, it should have been done sooner. But the fact that it's done now, it's it's really important work to make sure that these languages continue to continue to be spoken. Absolutely. So um, looking at this in a kind of an international perspective, I'm wondering where, you know, where does Canada fit um, we have a set of historical circumstances here that have led to this really awful situation that we find ourselves in. You know, where the, you know, through through policy, government policy, through a residential school system, through, you know, attempts to exterminate language and culture, we now have a nation that's that's trying to deal with the fallout from that. Are there other countries in similar circumstances or are we having to kind of go it alone here because of, you know, the uniqueness of how the colonial process unfolded in this country? So how, how do we compare in our language revitalization moment, if that's the right word, and our strategies compared to other countries around the world? Yeah, it's an interesting phenomena to think about. So um, as you've pointed to, there's many other places in the world who have experienced colonization and have experienced colonization in a similar way to how Canada has experienced. So there's a couple of places, um, New Zealand, Australia, um, America, Hawaii, and Alaska as two specific parts of the United States that have sort of affected um, in a really specific way, uh, that those are the places that you often hear people compare Canada to, that those places are kind of um, often connected uh, when we theorize or we create conferences or we sort of um, compare colonization experiences. And that's true, and there are some similarities there. However, there's some really big differences in regards to language. So first of all, the Maoris in New Zealand and the Hawaiians in Hawaii are the two places that people look to most often for successes. So they say these are two places that took their languages from near sleeping to almost complete re restoration. They have multi-generational speakers, families speaking, they have immersion schools, they have immersion all the way to university level, they have prolific radio, television, print material. So uh, uh, huge successes in both of those places. But there's absolutely no way to compare the Canadian situation to those two places because those are isolated by water, 
their islands, their almost monolingual indigenous languages. There's a little bit of variation in terms of dialect. So Australia is a closer match in terms of the number of languages and land mass. So when you think about geographic span, uh, but Australia, unfortunately, is even farther behind Canada in terms of their journey to reconciliation, in terms of their treatment of Indigenous people and the relationship between the settler society and Indigenous people. And so, unfortunately, there's not as much for us to learn. There's some good work happening there, and we do have connections to that country, but it's it's not the place that we look to primarily for learning. Um, the United States is probably our closest comparator, so we do a lot of collaborative work with the United States, the uh, mainland United States. But there's other places in the world, and I think that are more similar, in fact, in region to Canada that have many, many languages, uh, different parts of Africa, different parts of Southeast Asia, um, that have that kind of language diversity that governments are grappling with. And that's what I meant about the merging of our field with other fields mm -hmm. and what can we learn from those other, other places. And we're just at the cusp of that. It's, our field is just growing out of our kind of incubation period in Canada to be able to make those international connections. And I think in the next 10 to 15 years, we'll start to see some of the fruits of that labor. Mm -hmm. When you're doing the work of revitalization, is there any um, attention that you pay to the the the, his, the history behind it? Like, why are we in this place in the first place? Why are we dealing with this? And and the answer writ large is that, as we understand what happened to Indigenous peoples through the process of colonization, there is this. Uh, for lack of a better word, this trauma that was inflicted on, on those communities and how much of the work of revitalization has to deal with that trauma first and foremost before the communities can take up the work of, of revitalizing. Yeah, so there is a part to our grant that uh, attends to that. And so we have kind of a five-part foci to the um, the research platform of the grant and one part of the grant attends to the connections between language, health, and well-being. We've done some of that work already and done some publishing about that, uh, but there's more work to do. So it's definitely an understudied area of our field. It's a part of our field that's more anecdotal in nature. It's a part of our field that people talk about all the time. So we kind of know about it, but there hasn't been a lot of empirical study or a lot of attentiveness in a research capacity. So the kinds of things that people are focusing on. So one of the studies that we did, we interviewed a mentor, mentor apprentice pairs. So mentors learn, teaching the language, apprentices learning the language. And through the interviews that we did, we didn't even have overt questions about health and well-being, but all of the participants talked about the effects on their health and well-being, both negative and positive, mostly positive. But some of the negative effects were things like the apprentices would talk about um, 
going to school full-time, working full-time, and being a full-time apprentice and raising a family and, you know, and how they had to give up their leisure time and how their body was being affected by Mm -hmm. that. And so there were some negative effects to language learning about this kind of triple, quadruple burden. Uh, But mostly it was the positive effects of um, returning to themselves, stronger connections with community, rebuilding connections intergenerationally with the other um, members of their community. And then for the mentors, they would talk about feeling worth, feeling like the knowledge that they had had worth, being called upon to contribute in their community, having a reason to get up in the morning and somewhere to go and a young person to spend time with. Um, so there was many, many positive health-related outcomes that were surprising to us. And then with the new grant, uh, some of the areas of focus that our partners want to look at are something that people talk about with trauma is with latent speakers. So latent speakers are speakers who used to know the language or were fluent or proficient at one time in their life, but maybe lost that ability along the way, usually through residential school, but it could be other forces of colonization that have sort of suppressed the language in their life. Um, But what are the, are there any, mechanisms that can be put into place to assist people to work through that trauma to unlock the language within them because communities are recognizing that there's a whole sector within their community of untapped potential and that those members of their community are far easier to reach to move from the place they're in to full proficiency than building a new speaker from scratch Mm-hmm. And so that's an area that uh, some of our research partners are very interested in focusing on over the next five, six years together. Yeah, I think, you know, for those of us, like for me, I'm an English speaker. Um, that's been my language. That was where it was the whole the whole time that I was growing up. But sometimes we forget that language is connected to culture, which is connected to the history, right? So, you know for people like me, it's a, you have to make sure that, you know, especially, and I'm thinking for our listeners who are listening to this language, everything is so intersectional. Um, I think in our current day and age. And so when we're talking about people learning about language, you have to look at everything that's around that, right? And why that language, people don't speak that language and the effects of colonialism, both past tense and present, because this is not something that happened. This is something that continues to happen um, now. And so, you know, the work that's being done with language revitalization is part of that, right? I think for a lot of people, and it means that you also have to look at, like I couldn't imagine not being able to have my original language that kept me close to my culture because it's locked down underneath all of this trauma. And the only way to dig down through it is to really learn to process and heal from that. So it's not, you know, when I think about language, I think about learning it in university and I tried to learn Spanish and it was terrible and I'm good at a lot of things, but language is not one of them. And I don't have that emotional connection, right? Because the, I, the, the language that I speak, I know it's part of my culture, but that's not what this is. This is much deeper and runs a lot more deeper than that and is 
is combined with so much more. And so I think for the listeners who are like me, that's an important aspect that we have to remember Mm -hmm. um, for people who are trying to be allies is it's, it's not, it is language and the way that we see language is, is more, is, is less, how do I want to say this? The way that we see language, we see it almost without feeling or without emotion or without connection. And that's that's not what I'm hearing mm-hmm. um, about what this project is. There, it's it's very holistic. I think part of what you're describing too is not uncommon in what I would describe a monolingual environment. And even though we have technically a bilingual country, it's a very it's ac- in actuality it's quite a monolingual country with regions of bilingualism. Mm. So bilingualism lives regionally very strongly. I mean, there's parts of Canada that you go and you know that this is a bilingual country and people will fiercely (laughs) enforce that in your sphere, right? Particularly in Ottawa and and in Quebec. Uh, But that's experience in Western Canada that you're describing is part of a Western Canadian experience, and it's certainly true in the United States, where people have, a lot of people have had a monolingual experience, but there's lots of other places in the world that people can connect to the work that we're doing because just naturally they're multilingual. Mm -hmm. Most of the places in the world are multilingual. Canada is an anomaly. Canada, the United States are anomalies that way. Which I think sometimes we forget, right? We forget that. So it's it's a good reminder for me for me in particular to remember that. So how are how are you cuz thinking about this type of project and thinking about th- there are so many moving parts. I cannot imagine how many moving parts there are and how you're doing this. This is a phenomenal undertaking. How how is that going in relation to the logistics and how are you are there things that you can talk about because I know that you're still working in this process right and you're still trying to figure it all out but were there things that surprised you in this process were there obstacles that you didn't think that you would have to face are there any of those that come to mind for you is this the part where I get to cry? Oh (laughs) no. Only if you want to. No. Well uh Depending on your listeners, um, I've been around the faculty for a while, and um, Ted is my former dean. We've done some pretty phenomenal work together in the past, so we've—I'm not adverse to hard work and uh, managing big projects that have lots of moving parts. And so, I feel really fortunate that I—I I believe that I've received a lot of good training that have led that's led me to this moment to mm-hmm. be able to manage a project like this because of leading the department for nine years, leading us to a department um, alongside with other fantastic colleagues in the Faculty of Education. So, but it is, it is a huge undertaking. Um, surprises unfolding. Yeah, I think there's, uh, it's sometimes it's the smallest things that are the hardest things like space and really the minutia of it that can sometimes be really challenging and but other amazing surprises are just the capacity the research capacity of your partners and how 
people just come together so quickly and they got their research plans in and there we have three communities that are just off and running right in the first year they have their research projects underway we have quite a few of our former graduates involved in our research as well so they're uh, graduates of our masters of indigenous language revitalization and so some of them are our former supervisees and so it's kind of lovely to be with uh, these people that we've worked with and spent so much time with and now they're our colleagues and our friends and we're getting to continue to work kind of shoulder to shoulder with them it's a real privilege to work and be trusted you know you you can feel uh, like things must have gone okay if here you are on the other side and now you're partnering as uh, you know as research partners and uh, so quite a few of our partners are connected through that program that we have, our graduate program and former students. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And th- this, correct me if I'm wrong, this is funded through SSHRC? Yes. Okay. Yes. And is it still a case that SSHRC does not provide funding for teaching release correct. as part of the grant? That's correct. So that means that you're doing... The administration of the grant and the research without any release from your other duties as a faculty member. Yeah, so SHRC takes this stance, which some of the listeners would know that uh, we all have 40% of our jobs, most of the kind of jobs that we're in, Ted and I, 40% of our jobs is for research. And so they take the stance that they're giving you this money to do that part of your job. Mm-hmm. And that if your university determines that this job is bigger than that then it's up to your university to kind of renegotiate your role and so I was I have been supported by our dean and by the office of research services to be uh, released from some teaching because it is such a massive project and so I feel really well supported by our faculty for that that's great yeah Yeah. well that's good to hear yes that's good to hear yeah a shout out to our faculty for doing that because absolutely that that is way more than 40 percent of of your time with yeah it's a big job and it's and it's new i think this type of grant the partnership grant if i'm not mistaken i think it's the first time that we've had one in our faculty and so it's a big undertaking we have our dean isn't new to us but you know in our ao but um they've learned alongside with us and really we're all learning together and we feel really well supported so in in this really important work that you're doing what's what's your your big aim and hope yeah so one main thing and then one secondary aim i think that supports the main thing but we'll have a we'll have an outcome of its own so the the main outcome and focus of this research is the creation of new speakers new indigenous language speakers in canada and there's a particular focus on adult learning in this grant and some people think that's a little strange and they think, oh, well, you do not like children or something. <laughs> or do you, don't you know that children are excellent language learners? And it's, I'd have to take more time to explain kind of the science behind that. But the, sim- the simple way of putting it is that we've come to understand, Peter and I and our other research partners over the years, is that we're just at this moment with language revitalization that if we don't create a whole new generation of adult speakers who are 
the parents of the next generation who are the teachers in the preschool, the teachers in the K-12, the curriculum developers, the grant writers, the principals, that we're going to lose our languages if we don't quickly develop a new, a whole army and a whole generation of adult speakers right now who can then pass the language on to the next generation of children, that a focus on children alone has not gotten us where we need to be. The secondary aim of the grant is about building better neighbors, building good neighbors. And so there's a real overt focus in the grant, and you might have seen some of my work recently with CC UNESCO around educating Canadians about Indigenous languages and about the hope and about successes that Indigenous languages are that we're having with Indigenous languages and bringing people along on the journey and saying come join us come learn our languages with us learn a greeting learn the name of your town this is your heritage too and we want everybody to care we want to build better allies and better neighbors to our languages and we hope that that in turn will create more speakers both indigenous and non-indigenous speakers over time yeah and there are ways there are ways to do that as you know i just downloaded an app um and it was learning how to speak cree and i'm really excited and it's not easy That's but it's great. exciting right it's one of those things and um there's now starting to have more offering of different languages when you can do a secondary language i took a development studies undergrad they're now allowing for indigenous language to be included as part of that and so yes. it's nice to hear it because i think for even when i you know when i first started going to ceremony or started going and listening to indigenous speakers and they would say things like miigwetche i was like i don't know if i can say that back if that's allowed or if it's it's not. And so knowing that we're kind of invited along in this journey as allies or as trying to be allies um, is helpful because it is part of our history. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be nice to be able to have to be a part of that. Right. So it's very exciting. Wow. Thank you. Bye well, there. thank you for your time and your insights. And um, good luck with this work as you move forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So thank much. you so much. Hi, hi. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to Onawa McIver. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>